3: Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
2: Watching the 26th Conference of the Parties in Glasgow from a Distance has offered many of us mixed experience. It's been great to see commitments, including more ambitious emissions reduction targets, addressing deforestation and methane emissions... And we've seen just in recent time the importance of language. The mere mention of the word coal represents change. But the complexity of addressing global and local challenges of climate change remains significant. From the financial implications and funding, adequate support for loss and damage, adaptation of investment, and the influence of the fossil fuel industry in the negotiation process, there are many challenges ahead. The Australian Government approach to climate change action remains somewhat of a textbook example of a country that can do better. And so, while we make compromises on our climate action, the central question is our human future. What lies ahead if our actions are insufficient to prevent catastrophic change? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and the Human Futures Fellow from the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. This episode of Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. And of course, the Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can check out the short courses and degree programs that are available through Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. study. I'm delighted to be joined again by my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you?
3: Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here with you. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University, and I'm the Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and also the Children's Policy Centre. Anna Greta, I am really looking forward to this conversation today.
2: Sharon, I'm sure that like me, many of our listeners and yourself will have been following the uh, information coming out of COP26 with great interest. Uh, It does strike me that it's been quite a mixed bag and it's so good today to be joined by experts in the field who will help us pull apart, I think, the most important points from that meeting. Uh, We should mention again that we're recording remotely. We're still not quite back in the studio at ANU. Um, And so it brings with us some unique challenges, and we know particularly that the audio quality is often not quite what it was and that we have the odd visitor or audio sound, including our local animals and pets and traffic.
3: Yeah, we've had your chicken, Santa Greta. I can hear my dogs barking in the background, so we might have a puppy intervention today, but but let's hope the sound quality isn't too
2: bad. Absolutely, and hopefully we're back in the studio maybe next year. I do hope so. It
3: will be nice to be in the studio together and to get to talk to people face-to-face in real life.
2: Mm, absolutely. So, Sharon, would you like to introduce our guest for today?
3: Yeah, I would love to. We have two amazing guests with us today. And, you know, Anna Greta, as I was thinking about this this episode and the conversation we're about to have, one of the images from COP26 that stays with me and will stay with me for a long time, I think, is the minister from Tuvalu standing thigh deep in water delivering his address and signifying the extent of the threat that climate change represents for Pacific Island nations, and we have with us today Siobhan McDonald. Our regular listeners will remember hearing from Siobhan just before the start of COP26. She was in Glasgow as part of the delegation from Fiji, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Siobhan's insights into what happened during the negotiations. Siobhan is a senior lecturer here at the Crawford School. She's currently the chief investigator for an Australian Research Council-funded project, a, a discovery project, on climate change and gender in the Pacific, which is running from 2018 to 2023. Siobhan has previously held the role from 2019 to 2020 as Vanuatu's lead negotiator at International Fora for climate change and regional political issues. Her research is primarily focused on applied work in Indigenous Australia and Oceania around issues of climate change, um, around disaster, land rights and gender. Siobhan, welcome. It is great to have you with
0: us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, And I was, yeah, I had the absolute honour of being the lead negotiator for Fiji on loss and damage issues at this COP. Uh, So really happy to share with you that kind of experience.
3: Robert Glasser has also been with us um, on this series around COP26, and it is wonderful to welcome Robert back today. Robert is head of the Climate and Security Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE. Robert was previously the United Nations Secretary-General's Special Representative for Disaster Risk Reduction and was a member of the Secretary-General's Senior Management Team. Before joining the UN, he was the Secretary-General of CARE International, one of the world's largest non-government humanitarian organisations. He's undertaken climate change science and policy analysis for the United States Department of Energy at Los Alamos National Laboratory Centre for National Security Studies, and he's done research on peace and conflict issues at the Geneva Centre for Security Policy and at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here at the ANU, and across a number of universities. Robert, welcome back. It's fantastic to
1: have you with us today. Thanks very much. Great to be here.
3: Can we begin with your overall assessment of COP26? What was achieved, what wasn't, and what were the key moments? Robert, can we start with you?
1: Well, I think this is one of those outcomes that can be a glass half full or a glass half empty. I think, uh, if you, if you really take the most strategic look at what has happened, um, we, this conference has accelerated action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It hasn't accelerated action enough, but I remember really in Paris and Copenhagen, uh, the estimates of the amount of warming we could expect from the then commitments countries had made ranged from something like, you know, as high as four degrees of warming. Now, as a result of the Glasgow meeting and the commitments made in the lead up to Glasgow and um, in the margins of the negotiations, uh, that number has dropped considerably uh, depending on which study you look at. And there's actually just some recent science uh, that was published on this as well. But it's certainly closer to two and a half or three degrees, or in the best case, uh, analysis down to just over one and a half degrees. So yes, on balance, that's huge progress. It's not far enough because as we know, even with 1.5 degrees of warming, which is the lower limit set, uh, in the Paris climate agreement, that is still, we are still committed to major Climate disasters around the world, and particularly in countries, uh, small island developing states, but in Australia as well. So I think that was the, I guess the most up, uh, most positive outcome overall is that we seem to be on track for reducing emissions, but we're not moving. We're still not moving fast enough.
3: And Javon, what were your overall impressions?
0: Look. Uh Mixed, I would have to say. Um, I mean, the outcomes of Conference of the Party negotiations are always mixed um, and they are processional. The reality is that this one and the real outcomes from it will be determined in Egypt um, and they're very much linked to this, for the Pacific, to this compact around a 1.5 pathway. So. For Pacific, uh, for the Pacific and particularly for for Atoll nations, um, it's 1.5 to stay alive. You know, there is no pathway beyond 1.5. And so, so much of what we negotiate towards as the Pacific is about that target. Um, For us, there is this sense that 1.5 is still on the table, that The NDC commitments, the renewed set of focus on 2030 targets means that 1.5 is still at the moment a viable pathway. Um, So that's important. There there was a doubling of adaptation commitments. That's also important. There's a sense of the urgency and immediacy of that funding. Um, For the first time ever, OCEAN's have been placed on the table and are now part of the UNFCCC framework. That's a huge win for the Pacific that's been led by Fiji, and Fiji should rightly be incredibly proud of that as an achievement. Um, So that's the success. Article 6, there are some wins and losses about um, the framework for Article 6. The disappointing areas were the the last-minute kind of coal change, um, the phasing down of fossil fuels, and also in my area the very weak um, kind of framing of a dialogue around loss and damage financing, uh, which is something that we can really uh, just discuss in much more detail when we come to a discussion of that. Um, But that is a key focal priority for the Pacific. So... um, As with all of these uh, kind of negotiations, you always leave feeling muted at the end, I think, is the best way of describing it. Um, In some areas, there were some reasonably okay outcomes. We would always hope for more. Um, And in some areas, there were some outcomes that were very disappointing, particularly some of the aspects of the of the area that I was negotiating in, um, so yeah, it's a it's a mixed feeling, but again, it's always very processional. You kind of leave one cop looking directly forward to the next cop because they're so linked. Um,
2: yeah, Siobhan, it's a really powerful uh, point that you make that there's a very limited or perhaps no pathway for the Pacific Island if we get above uh, one point five degrees. Perhaps you can take us through what the impacts of COP twenty six might be in the Pacific Islands, the, the results of this particular negotiation. So,
0: I mean, I think, I think one of the really important things to think around is just how the kind of Herculean nature of the effort that went on. Um, uh, very early on, the Fijian Prime Minister sent out a text message just describing the fact that Pacific negotiators were outnumbered 12 to one by fossil fuel uh, fossil fuel <laughs> lobbyists. and and that's the kind of representation that we're talking about. Um, so the Pacific, as I mentioned before we left, was even less represented than usual. Um, it was a thin spread. The leadership worked night and day. The negotiators worked night and day to really get those very important kind of theme messages from the Pacific across. So that meant that not only did I negotiate for 16, 18 hours, but then the leadership from Fiji, from the Marshall Islands, from Tuvalu went and worked through all of the leadership circles. So they met with Boris Johnson. They met with the Secretary General. They met with the entire Australian-European delegations. They met with John Kerry. You know, they went and did all of the leaders' meetings on all of the thematic priority areas as well. So the Pacific plays so far above its weight in these in these areas. And they're playing that hard because these matters are so vitally important. Um, and people carry with them the weight of that responsibility when they step into the space of COP and they return now to their home countries, needing to describe what it is that they've done. Um, and go back to their day jobs where they work in the Ministry of Climate Change or Environment or, <laughs> you know, take up all of these everyday roles. So it's this incredibly discreet period of three weeks of their life and then they go back to having to do the work of, of those, you know, of those ministerial positions or the positions that they sit in for the rest of the year, actually doing the nuts and bolts of all of this every day, having to work through what resettling communities might look like, having to work through um, sea level rise and the issues that are being faced day to day, having to work through what the implications of cyclones mean and disaster relief. So people are so acutely aware of of those policy issues in their day-to-day lived reality and sometimes there's a frustration in the context that I work in, in the negotiation forum, because the negotiation forum is, um, is so, <laughs> it's so uh, diplomatic, you know, it's so um, text based, and it's so um, restrained that you can't really speak from that lived experience. You're actually negotiating over text most of the time um, so there's a disconnect often between people's very deep embodied lived experience and what's happening in those rooms as well
3: Robert Siobhan described the conferences of the parties as processional with each one linked to the past and to the future But this conference was billed as extraordinary as our last chance for change as we stand on the precipice of
1: climate change.
3: In the end, how different was it from past conferences?
1: Yeah, I think uh, as uh, Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said in the lead-up to the meeting, this is a code red when, when the IPCC released its latest report on climate impacts. This is a code red for the planet. Uh, and that sense of urgency was really critical because, uh, it, because the climate is continuing to warm. It's warmed beyond one degree already, 1.2 degrees already. Um, and if you look at the way the climate works, there's enormous inertia in the system. So even if tomorrow every car, every factory stopped producing greenhouse gases, the climate will continue to warm for decades. On the basis of the emissions emitted over previous decades. So we can't wait until we're on the cusp of 1.5 degrees or when the climate impacts are even more devastating than they already are already becoming to act or we're already locked into further uh, climate warming. In fact, most of the climate scientists I speak to feel that it is, we are really uh, at a cusp of 1.5 1.5 degrees of warming simply as a result of the inertia, the existing emissions, that the opportunities now to keep warming to 1.5 degrees are extremely small. And so there is this sense of urgency. It's also one of the reasons I think at this negotiation, the attention shift from shifted uh, from focusing on net zero country commitments to achieve net zero by 2050 to 2030. Because it became very clear that emissions need to be reduced, as the UN and other studies have suggested, by 45% by, uh, by, by 2030 in order to have any chance of net zero. So that this was a big focus at the meeting. Australia came to that meeting, of course, with a net zero commitment, uh, new net zero commitment by 2050, but with very with nothing new on uh in terms of limits and or reductions by 2030. So yes, um, that this was the sense of urgency that uh, that this climate conference had. You know, I've, I've been at other climate conferences where actually we were devastated after the the meeting. Copenhagen's a good example that really fell apart. There was big buildup of expectations in the lead up to Copenhagen, and and the result was devastating. Everyone felt depressed and deflated. So here in Glasgow, in Glasgow, I don't. People are disappointed. I'm I'm sure because we're still not we, the commitments do st- still do not achieve net uh, or or still will take us well beyond 1.5 degrees of warming. Uh, on the other hand, thanks to Siobhan and others' hard work at this meeting, we have taken another step forward.
2: It's it is it's this balance of optimism and our ongoing sense of urgency. It's it's a challenging one, I think, to go through. It's so good to speak with you both. Siobhan, I'd like to talk a little bit around loss and damage. It's an area that I know you've done some remarkable work in. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners what this is and where negotiations around it reached at COP26?
0: Yeah, I would absolutely welcome the opportunity to do that. So... Loss and damage is really talking about climate impacts. So there are two types of climate impacts in the loss and damage framing. It's economic and non-economic losses, and it's really describing the scale of impacts that are beyond adaptation. So it's talking about, um, you know, what is not... What are things that you can't adapt to? The impacts of climate change that are simply beyond the scale of adaptation. So, the economic impacts that we see as a result um, from these cycles of cyclones, for example, that impact on the Pacific, these huge, the huge scale of economic and material damage that's done repeatedly across time but also the non-economic impacts. So the non-economic impacts associated with, um, for example, resettlement, displacement, loss of access to ancestral place, belonging, um, burial grounds. We don't even have a framework for how we can begin to think around some of these things. We also don't necessarily have a great set of understandings for how we start to think about loss and damage in the the context of slow-onset risk and slow-onset disaster like, like sea level rise. So sea level rise, not just the impacts of sea level rise on atoll islands in the Pacific, but also the impacts of sea level rise across the entire Pacific. The whole of the Pacific is coastal. Almost the whole of the Pacific is settled as coastal, So, the implications of sea level rise for the Pacific are incredibly profound. So, the conversation around loss and damage is very much focused on these sets of climate impacts that are happening now, but also into the future. And there's two parts to the conversation. One is the operationalization of what we call the Santiago network because we built it in Madrid. which is saying we need technical assistance on the ground now in climate-vulnerable countries to really assess these loss of damage impacts and start to provide operational assistance on the ground in a variety of forms. That's the Santiago Network. And we in recently at COP26 we started looking at what the functions of the Santiago Network would be. The second part of the equation is a long-term fund associated with loss and damage, some form of finance associated with loss and damage. This has been a big request on the table. The Pacific and Vanuatu actually first came up with this request in 1991 and it's been a long-term request climate-emitting countries have said no for 20 years. And so the proposal that the Pacific put on the table and Fiji drafted it and our minister, our designated ministerial champion, Tuvalu, actually put it forward on our behalf. And what it said is we want to have dedicated loss and damage finance in addition to the adaptation finance stream, but we understand this is a big ask. So what we'd like to do is form a committee that accepts submissions between now and the next COP to think around what this might look like. Let's form a committee together, developed and developing countries. Let's accept submissions. Let's form a work plan. Let's think around what this institution might look like. It might have different regional arrangements in different parts of the world because this might look different in Africa to how it looks in the Pacific. It might look very different in the Caribbean where they're they are much more interested in um, insurance products than we are in the Pacific where we've already got a range of those already. So let's have this conversation together. So we drafted that proposal. We put it forward. It got support from our AOSIS block of countries. Um, and then uh, we were very fortunate to also secure the support of the G77 block of countries, the G77 and China. So, all of a sudden, that became the proposal that was put forward by the G77. So, six out of seven people around the world is the G77 constituency. And we put that proposal, drafted by Fiji, on the table, drafted by me, um, on the table in the negotiating room. And that was the first time a proposal for loss and damage finance has ever been put forward. And civil society then. Began to agitate for that proposal as well. And we began a set of negotiations with partners. Um, there was a lot of toing and froing. There was a lot of work internal to the G77 group to take on board a whole range of priorities from other G77 partners. Um, we moved backwards and forwards. We engaged in really detailed negotiations through the day and night. A lot of partners engaged in those negotiations, including Australia, including New Zealand, including the EU, including the UG. The only partner that didn't move was the US and supporting the US-Canada. So we could not move the US and Canada to engage in this conversation, but we essentially could reach agreement with everybody else in the room, the other 142 countries. Because this is a consensus-based process and we couldn't bring all 144 countries on board, we could only bring 142 countries on board, the presidency would not accept the negotiated outcome that we came to at 3 a.m. on the Friday morning before the plenary on Saturday, which meant that we ended up with the very disappointing text in the final COP CMA Outcomes, which says instead of having a committee with a series of recommendations to come back at the next COP, it says there will be a dialogue over the next, between now and 2024, there will be a dialogue with no outcomes. So incredibly disappointing as an outcome around loss and damage finance. And we will now work to think around how to strengthen the outcome in that space.
2: Siobhan, that's an extraordinary story. And what I hear is this amazing thing that you've achieved. Uh, I can only imagine the end, but the pathway forward and the, the, the potential for change that you're creating is so extraordinary. Let's take a brief break there, listeners, and we will be back again after the break to finish this conversation with Siobhan McDonnell and Robert Glasser.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: Welcome back. We're here with Siobhan McDonnell and Robert Glasser talking about COP26 and what might come next. Siobhan, before the break, you were describing to us the quite devastating outcome on the loss and damages negotiations and your role in bringing about those negotiations and progressing them to the point you did is remarkable. And as I hear you talk and hear Pacific Islanders talk about what might be lost from climate change, the extent of that loss is overwhelming. Belonging, connection, ancestral lands, burial places, these things that mean so much. Siobhan, when you are negotiating, does the power and the emotion of what might be lost impact on others and shape their behaviours and what it is they're saying? Or does it just wash over them as political interests play out?
0: It's very hard to answer that question. Um, I Negotiating rooms are very strange places. Um, it's, it's hard for me to describe exactly what it's like for your listeners. I mean, I, I went to Glasgow and one of our other very lovely colleagues at ANU, who I won't name, said, oh, you're going to my home city, enjoy, it's going to be amazing, and I didn't. I didn't have the heart to convey to her that I wasn't going to see Glasgow. Like when I go to these spaces, I am in a convention centre 18 hours a day. Like I leave in the dark and I come home in the dark and my whole experience of Glasgow is um, a train trip there and a train trip back again in cold or drizzly rain in the dark. So the whole space is artificial you're locked in these rooms with people, in and out of rooms for days and nights on end. Often negotiation sessions start at 10:30 p.m. at night. Sometimes they clear the room and let you do informal negotiations that begin at 2 a.m. Um, and you essentially are engaging through text. So you have at the end of the day, if you look at the loss and damage section in the COP and CMA decisions, you'll see that there's like maybe two pages of text, but that was, you know, two weeks of our lives negotiating that. So it's very hard to describe the amount of time and energy that goes on working through text. People are not able to convey the depth of the experiences of the places that they carry with them or the what it is that they're arguing for or um and and when that happens so the moment where the G77 presented our proposal around loss and damage financing this room full of G77 ministers so the two ministers from the Pacific, one minister from the Caribbean, the minister from Latin America, the minister from Africa, you know, spoke one after the other about why this was so important, one after another, after another, after another, and America just said no, and Canada said no, and at that point in time New Zealand said no, right? So (laughs) the capacity, I mean, you can go back and look at my text messages from that moment because I was texting out what the ministers were saying and it was this incredibly powerful call from the global south around how important this is and how impacted countries are globally, ministers, political leaders talking from the heart about what they know of the experiences in their countries. And the response was no or we already give funding or why do you just ask for more funding or how can you put this on the table now? This is the second week of negotiations. This is unacceptable. So, There's not always empathy in the room. There's not always empathy and understanding. There is, it's sometimes difficult to find that. It's easier in smaller scale bilaterals, but sometimes the framing of those broader conversations, it can be very hard. And then I know from the perspective of the G77 negotiators, they were extremely upset, like personally aggrieved by how their ministers had been treated
2: in that meeting. It's a, it's it's part of what you said earlier about the space for the lived experience and the importance of the human narrative in these negotiations. Um, it 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 sounds really complicated.
0: And there's a reason for that as well. You know, there is a tightly framed way in which we negotiate and we are driving towards finding outcomes and it is text-based for a reason. And there are other spaces at COP that allow for different kinds of conversations as well. Like this is not the only conversation that's happening. There are lots and lots of other spaces at COP. So. It's important to kind of remember that. So there were 30,000 people that attended COP and maybe, I don't know, 600 of them were negotiators. So there's a lot of other things that are going on as well.
2: So, Robert, let's talk a little bit about the role that the United States has played in, in COP26 and, and in the negotiating process. Um, and you know, Siobhan's just been highlighting some of the roles that were played by the US uh, in that process. A lot's been made of the United States' return to the negotiating process and the newfound enthusiasm for climate action uh, with the election of Joe Biden as president. What did you make of the US role during COP26 and, and what do you see them doing in the future?
1: Well, maybe just to pick up on some of the points Siobhan made, if you, what, one of the reasons the US uh, is reluct, has been consistently reluctant to sign up to loss and damage in the COP is that if you look at... Uh, the historical responsibility of countries for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, something like 25% of, uh, of historical CO2 emissions are from the United States. Um, I think the next largest, uh, emitter among developed countries is Germany, which is about five and a half to six percent. So, uh, I, you know, this concern by the U.S. in, in spite of having Joe Biden As the president now, who's uh, re-engaged the United States in the in the Paris climate process, in spite of the fact that Biden has increased the U.S.'s commitment twenty thirty commitment significantly um, and contributed funding to uh, additional funding to help less developed countries adapt. And uh, transition from fo- adapt to climate change and transition from fossil fuels. They still remain relentlessly resistant to the loss and damage piece, but they have contributed significantly at this meeting. Certainly when you compare it to the Trump administration, where he essentially took the U.S. fortunately temporarily out of the Paris process. Um, and, and the Biden has been and John Kerry in particular has been really active in the lead-up to the COP, lobbying countries, including Australia, to increase its level of ambition. Um, and, you know, the the comment that Shabon meant, referred to earlier from some developed countries, that why do you want more funding? We're already uh, giving you significant amounts of money to deal with climate change. Of course, is not actually correct, because one of the prid quo, uh, pro quos for developing countries to sign up to even join the Paris process was a commitment from uh wealthy nations to mobilize 100 billion dollars a year by 2020 and through 2025 to help countries adapt uh, uh developing countries adapt to climate change and they have not developed countries have failed to achieve that amount now they failed at this meeting to do that as well although there's some uh, increased commitments made over, um, in the years ahead, uh, at this, at, at the COP. So I think the U.S. has played a useful role. I, it's clearly been working closely with India. We haven't really talked about India's really phenomenal commitment they made at this meeting, really interesting short-term pledges. Uh, um, uh, they've certainly been lobbying China. It was great to see, uh, Kerry with his, uh, Chinese counterpart walk back into the the room with his arm with their arms around each other at least his arm around uh, his Chinese counterpart, trying sending a message anyway that uh, it's possible to cooperate on climate change even when there's some other quite uh, thorny problems in the the bilateral relationship. So yeah, I think the U.S. has made has has certainly improved its position, but as Chibon has very vividly pointed out on loss and damage. Uh, it has has still reluctant to engage, and often what I've seen, I don't know if you saw this, Siobhan, uh, in Glasgow, is that sometimes country, other countries, knowing that another one of their fellow countries is is going to uh, object to something, feel more comfortable than coming out in favor of it and getting the kudos that goes along without without actually having to implement it. Uh, confident in the knowledge that it's going to be vetoed by a country like the United States. Uh, yeah, a bit disappointing in that respect.
3: Siobhan, I wanted to ask you about the position Australia took. Australia announced a commitment to net zero by 2050 ahead of the conference, but the government has been steadfast in saying that the 2030 targets, regarded by many experts as wholly inadequate, will remain as is. How was Australia's position received by Pacific Island nations in particular and indeed by the rest of the parties at the conference?
0: So I think, um, you know, the sense was that Australia was really dragged to the net zero by 2050 uh, commitment but that that was welcomed uh, and yet Pacific Island countries, uh, the Fiji Prime Minister, for example, said, show us what the plan to get there looks like. show us what the 2030 commitment looks like. Um, and that very much becomes, you know, the crucial focus for a lot of this set of discussions. So I think um, there's a sense that Australia is still very much lagging in terms of its climate change commitments. Um, and there's a real need to keep to signal clearly to the region particularly given how important climate change security issues are across the region um, and how prominent these threats are, particularly across the region. So um, the leadership, you know, went and spoke repeatedly to the Australian leadership. They spoke about all of these issues. They saw them um, directly on, you know, nationally determined commitments, but also on 1.5. They saw them directly on on loss and damage financing repeatedly. Um, so, you know, the Australian government can be under no illusions about how clear these priorities are for the Pacific. Um, I mean, I think, you know, because I work across these regional issues as well, I think, you know, I know that Maurice Payne is about to head to Palau to have a discussion around the Pacific Island Forum, but Australia is kidding itself if it thinks that its regional priorities can't um, you know, we'll go ahead without climate change being front and centre on the agenda um, because this is where it's at for the Pacific. There are very few things that matter as much as this. And even um, in the context of COVID, the Pacific leadership have said climate change is still our number one concern.
2: Really important message there um, for anybody listening. I could speak to Robert and Siobhan for many hours. It's been so remarkable listening to the the reflections that the two of you have and particularly listening, Siobhan, to your experience negotiating. But we are going to draw this uh, conversation to a close and we might finish just by looking toward the future. COP27 will be held, of course, in November 2022 in Egypt and what's, we're wondering what your number one piece of advice for policymakers might be about what needs to happen across the next 12 months to ensure that that COP27 is a success. And and perhaps if you, if you want to give a quick answer to the question about whether this COP process is our best way forward.
1: Robert? Hmm. Well, uh, I think the most urgent issue is uh, heightened ambition for 2030, and uh, I think many countries have signed up to do that austria our government has said that that they that uh we won't be increasing our ambition although we supported that uh, outcome at the cop um by 2030 i think labor in the election will be coming to the elections with a more ambitious 2030 target uh so i think uh i think that is the really key issue we have to start making deep cuts rapidly I think that will also be helped along, sadly, by bigger, more, and uh, and, uh, and more severe disasters triggered by climate, because at over one degree, we're already seeing the frequency and severity of these events increasing non-linearly. And I think that will generate uh, greater ambition in and of itself. It will change the politics. And finally, just highlight the the role of the private sector with the price of renewables plummeting, that is also going to accelerate the transformation faster than I think people realise.
2: Mm. Great to hear. Siobhan, what are your thoughts for the next 12 months? Where do we need to focus our attention? So it's abso- for Australia,
0: it's absolutely a 2030 commitment. Um, for Australia, we have to have a serious um, and engaged just transitions conversation, which I think is something that we haven't been prepared to have across both sides of the political spectrum, what does that look like? What does it actually look like? Um, And I think um, keeping in mind that 2030 focus for the Pacific, it's about a pathway to 1.5. And in my space of loss and damage, um, a loss and damage finance facility is an inevitability. So um, you know, I would urge our broader partners to to get on board with that as soon as possible um, because change is a coming. They're my thoughts.
2: <laughs> what a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time, Siobhan and Robert. It's been an extraordinary conversation and I know one that I'll listen to many times over the months ahead. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and perspective.
1: Thanks, colleagues.
3: Thank you. Anna Greta, that was an incredibly powerful conversation. Some of the comments that Siobhan in particular made about the experience of being in the negotiating room are going to stay with me for a very long time. And the reality of the negotiations is really in stark contrast to the pressing issues that people are facing in their daily lives around climate change and particularly in the Pacific. You now, I mentioned at the beginning of this pod that image of the Foreign Minister from Tuvalu standing thigh deep in water. I think of that image, and I think about, you know, for example, the poetry of Kathy Jetnell kinjana who does this incredibly emotional, powerful poetry about what will be lost through climate change. And then I contrast that with that cold, hard negotiation that Siobhan was talking about and the refusal of some countries to recognise what is being lost. And I'm staggered. Hmm.
2: No, the, the, that, that was a remarkable theme to come through today's conversation um, and I have to say listening to Robert and listening to Siobhan really helps me to unpack both the successes that we should acknowledge from the COP26 process as well as the really significant areas for us all to pay more attention in the 12 months and the many years ahead as we continue to, to really work on climate change and on the impacts that we all see and feel in our lives. But it's a disconnect between technical legal language and negotiations where words matter. Uh, with the the narrative, with the lived experience, with the stories that we, all the listeners for this podcast will have experienced in their own lives, the extreme weather events, the changes in environment around us, and how we can marry that narrative of the human experience with the technical language and the the procedural approaches that we really need to see real action. It's a very important contrast, I think, and I suspect it'll be one that we'll explore further.
3: Yeah, it really is fascinating. And Anna Greta, I think both you and I have been in those international meetings where that very technical language is used. And when you're in the midst of it, you you kind of understand that it's needed and that this is in many ways a very technical process. It's a very political process. And the negotiators are there to represent the point of view of their governments. And so at uh, a cognitive level, one understands that. But at an emotional level and at a human level, you know, hearing those comments that Siobhan made and hearing the emotion in her voice, I think it's fair to say, really does highlight that disconnect that you talk about. So I think this is something we need to come back to. And I think about our, our hashtag of value caring. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that what is missing from these kinds of negotiations is the power that caring brings and the humanity that caring brings. Absolutely,
2: yep. Look it's the words that help us to, to, to think that you know a compromise of two degrees will be survival will, will allow us to survive, where that I think should be questioned, uh, particularly in terms of the narrative associated with two degrees. a two degree w- world will be a very yeah. different place to the one that we live in at the moment. Uh, and those stories are so important if we are going to contend with climate change and and really see meaningful climate action in, in the years ahead. Um, Such an important story and so grateful to Robert and to Siobhan for for sharing their thoughts with us today.
3: Yeah, they were both remarkable and um, yeah, also very grateful to them. And I think it would be fantastic to have them back into 2022, Anna Greta, in the lead up to COP27 in in Egypt, um, to hear their thoughts on, on how things are progressing and what we need to achieve at the next COP. Yep, Absolutely.
2: Well, we should be talking about climate change most of the time.
3: So listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode um, as much as Ana Greta and I have. And thank you for joining us throughout this series on COP. Um, as Ana Greta says, this is certainly not the last time that we will talk about climate. Um, we may even talk about climate again this year. I'm not sure, but we certainly will next year. But um, we will leave this COP 26 series for now. Listeners, do reach out to us and let us know what you thought about this episode, about this series, and about the pod generally. We love to hear from you and we take your thoughts very, very seriously. You can contact us on Twitter, at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can get in touch the old-fashioned way via email. We're at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. If you just pop Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us there. You can also subscribe, um, and we would love you to do that, and leave a review on whatever platform you'd like to pod with. But Anna Greta and I will be back next week with more. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's
2: bye bye for now. And bye bye from me, the Greta Hunter.
3: Planning for your next trip?